It's December 6th, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to share my thanks for the recent spur of donations that have been made to the show. They couldn't have come at a better time, as I had two hard drives fail, and your donations have helped towards ensuring a reliable backup for the show. Now, I get to interview a lot of photographers, of whom much has been written about and who have been interviewed dozens of times. But when I was finally able to schedule my own interview with Joe McNally, I was really excited to have a conversation that would build on what Joe has already shared before, and he didn't disappoint. As you no doubt know, he is an amazing photographer and a phenomenal and generous teacher. It's always nice to discover that great photographers are great people as well. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Joe McNally. Well, Joe, welcome to the show. It's it's a great opportunity to have a uh, have a chance to talk to you this morning. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, it's a great show. You do a you do a really terrific job, and I'm honored to be asked. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, let's start in terms of your approach to photography. I think a lot of people who listen to the show are already very familiar with your work, either because of the books that you've written, the, the or the articles have been written about you. But your approach to lighting, how much of that was born from just the necessities that were demanded of you as a photojournalist, particularly in your early days at the newspaper? Well, it's a, you know, it's an evolution as, as a lot of photographic skills or adaptations are for sure. Uh, I wasn't really expected back in the days of my newspaper and wire service work to uh, mess around over much with flash. It just wasn't necessarily a requirement. I found myself gravitating towards it because I was curious myself about how to produce better quality. Um, and uh, not that I was a better shooter than anyone else. It just, you know, I, was, I would look at something and say, well, it's ISO 400 and 800, it looks like this. What would it look like? at a lower ISO, say, plus X, you know, and back in the black and white days. And how would I perhaps um, influence not just the quantity of light, but the quality of light I was seeing. And, you know, it started to experiment and had some, you know, just profound disasters <laughs> as, as you go, you know. Uh, and then, of course, you know, surviving as a magazine shooter, I got dropped in and to kind of the deep end of the pool when I took a job, I came straight out of being a black and white uh, wire service and newspaper shooter on the streets of New York. I took this job with ABC Television as a network still photographer, and my boss just looked at me and he just said, "Well, you know, we shoot Kodachrome, you know, and we light a lot of stuff." And I had no idea. Oh my! Oh my gosh! I thought I was I thought I was going to die, or fail, or a combination of both. And um, uh, thankfully, there was a bit of grace, you know, in that job, built into that job, that I had some time and some leeway to experiment, to fail, and to learn. Uh, so that's when that started. It was really a question of survival. 
you, Kodachrome is is notoriously restrictive, for lack of a, of a of a better word. There's very little latitude there. How how did that you know very tight limitation really inform your approach to 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 light? Uh, it, it was a good limitation. I, I thought if if it's, uh, you know to um, use that word, and I think it's probably appropriate. I mean, the uh, Kodachrome was uh, the gold standard, really, of the National Geographic, for instance. I mean, I I shot so much Kodachrome uh, for the Geographic over the course of shooting num- numerous stories there, uh, and starting back in the late '80s. And it was, on one side of the ledger, yes, uh, not too much latitude, uh, not too fast, all that sort of stuff that you could perceive as a limitation. On the other side, the rigor, the discipline that the film required uh, led you to be a more disciplined shooter, to learn uh, you know, about light and to be more precise in your uh, estimations and your exposures and all of that. And the reward, you know, was the fact that you had, you made, if you made a really good Kodachrome, say Kodachrome 25 or Kodachrome 64, you had a very rich and positive, you know, kind of result. I mean, the, the scene was represented well because uh, the film was very true and, and very, very detailed. I think when people look at your images, they always have a great appreciation for the beauty of, of the light that at, at its heart of all your work, whether it's stuff you've done a couple of weeks ago or did 30 years ago, it's often about the story. What role is the light really playing in your ability to be able to tell the story with either an individual image or individual image or a series of images? Well, I've always, and I, I, I say this a lot, I've always viewed light as language. It is our language as photographers. It's what um, we use to describe our subjects, to talk to our viewers. Light is very powerful. If you use light well, uh, you can psychologically direct your viewer right to where you want them to look. And that is, uh, again, a very powerful tool on the part of a photographer. When you create a frame, you know, you um, instinctively, intuitively, I think, are, are being driven by the light that you're observing in the scene. Also, you know, gesture and all of that, to be sure. But the, the one thing that is always out there that we are always playing this game with is light. And if we use it well, we speak to our subjects well. And that, in turn, communicates to the reader or the viewer of our work. You know, there are a lot of people who've emulated your style or that of uh, David Hobby's The Strobist, and they've learned these techniques to be able to use either portable speed lights or strobes to create these aesthetically beautiful photographs. Yet, when I see some of them, they seem to be missing a little something. They may look much like the images that you have others produced, but there's something missing. What, what quality do you think that people are not considering when they're practicing these techniques in their own photography? That's a really, that's like the $64 question or, you know, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good work being done. There's a lot of well-crafted work. There's a lot of work that, um, emulates other work or, you know, in a positive way, you know, certainly uh, every photographer has influences, you know, David for, for sure, myself, anyone out there, 
But I think what does separate, if you will, and I'm trying not to, I'm choosing my words carefully here because I don't want to come off sounding like, you know, there's this gulf or gap. I mean, I, I tend to firmly believe we are all in this together. We are trying to communicate visually and, and it's a, it's a, a profoundly easier thing to do on one level and also a more difficult thing to do at the same time with all of this technology that we've been inundated with. We're, we're swimming for our lives. I mean, the new stuff coming down the pike all the time, but that's a separate question. The, the, I think where it comes down to this, when folks look at me and say, oh, you know, you're this, or you're that, I just kind of shake my head and say, no, I, I'm, I'm no big deal. I'm just a guy with a camera the one thing that I might have that's an advantage over, say, someone on Flickr who's been doing it for just a few years or something like that is that I've been through the mill. I've been doing it a long time. I've got 30, 35 years of backed up experience and some degree of knowledge. I've also been berated fiercely by editors I've lost clients, I've done dumb things, I've blown assignments, I've succeeded, and I've been praised, and all those things that go along with being a professional photojournalist, and I think some of that gets a little bit lost in the wash. I, I had a situation, to digress hopefully very quickly here, just, just quickly, a, a, a woman came to me and asked me for some tips, because she was with a major government agency that was launching a multi, multi, multi-million dollar study of a certain geographical area of the country. And they just looked at her and said, well, we know you like taking pictures and you've got a digital camera, so you're the photographer for this incredibly you know, significant effort they were about to make. And she was understandably nervous. And she said, well, do you have any tips for me? And I just kind of wrung my hands. I looked at her and I said, you know, uh, what you need to be, what needs to happen here is you need to be trained as a photojournalist. And she was kind of taken aback. That wasn't the answer she was looking for. You know, uh, you know, I, I think she was looking for literally a couple of tips, like, you know, always use group A or something, you know, <laughs> and it can't be boiled down that simply. Um, you know, people who have a backlog of experience for newspapers and magazines know how to shoot. They know how to communicate. They, there's a depth to their work. It's, I think it's what you put your finger on. There's just that's something missing. Maybe just a depth of communication, experience, uh, a knowledge of how to tell a story, how to check a source, how to find a story. Some stories are not laying on the surface. Sometimes you've got to dig really, really hard. All that stuff is really hard work. It's not just about F-stops. I think people are surprised to hear you say that you've you've blown a job because I think part of the expectation is that at a certain level, great photographers don't make mistakes; they just make great photographs. But I think one of the, one of the testaments to your to your your ability to be around for as long as you have is your ability to solve problems, being a a problem solver. How big of that? Has how big a role has that played in your being able to be along around for as long as you have? I, I think it's been huge. And any photographer, uh, professional or otherwise, who tells you that they don't fail at least occasionally, um, no matter how good or how vaunted they are, um, anybody who tells you they don't fail, um, even on a semi-regular basis, uh, when I you know I use fail advisedly, I mean 
you have to please the client. You have to do these certain things. You have to jump through the hoops to stay alive economically and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you do, uh, if you do this uh, for a living a lot, you will turn in work that you're not pleased with or you feel that you missed the boat on for sure. Um, and that is a great teacher in and of itself. Um, but, you know, in reference to, um, you know, the problem solving aspects of, of what, what you mentioned, it definitely has helped me stay alive because I've done, for instance, some jobs for National Geographic that, you know, um, come to me because I guess I, I, I do have a bit of an imagination and I apply that to the job at hand in terms of solving that because um, I'm first one to admit I'm not a, a very good street shooter. Uh, I, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, Bruno Barbet, you know, wandering the streets of Morocco and doing these wonderfully you know, poetic images. Uh, I, I have, I need a context. I need uh, kind of a narrative that I have to follow. Just wandering for me oftentimes produces some fairly, you know, mediocre pictures. But um, the um, um, the thing about problem solving is that I I do get jobs from the Geographic, for instance, where you know they uh, have a, a, a kind of a complex set of parameters: a little bit of big production, a little bit of portraiture, a little bit of run and gun journalism, a little bit of um, you know, uh, uh, maybe a concept photography or something, just this grab bag of stuff that has to happen to make this story lift. And they oftentimes, or well, sometimes anyway, would give me that type of story because I, I kind of bounce around uh, fairly well in, in the context of, of those kinds of, of parameters. I, I, I tend to solve problems, and, and hence I get stories that occasionally a lot of photographers would not want to do because they are seriously problematic. Can you give me an example of, of just one situation where you were posed with a very large or imposing sort of technical problem but that you, know, you decided to, to take on and, and pull off? Sure. Um, there's been any number of those that have occurred over time. Um, I mean, here's an example of, of some uh, of something that I, I failed miserably uh, the first time out. I was doing a telescope story for the Geographic, you know, and this massive sort of um, you know instruments that look at deep space. And one of the instruments they use is a gravity wave detection station, and there's nothing to see. Gravity waves can't be seen or felt or heard or tasted or anything. And the way they measure them is to run uh, lasers along pipes, tunnels really, that are two and a half miles long. And so it's just a gray concrete tunnel in the middle of the forest for two and a half miles. That's it. You can't get inside of it. You know, at the one end of it is a guy with a computer, you know. Um, so how do you illustrate that? I went down, I tried something, I tried something that I thought might work and I just, I failed by a long shot. The picture was horrible. And I went to my editor and I begged him to go back. I said, can I actually go back into the woods of Louisiana? You know, and, um, he said, all right, yeah, let's give it another try. So I went back and I did a multiple exposure where I laid down an exposure of this pipe at dusk on a tungsten balance type of a film 
that turned it very eerie and very blue. And then I took my rental minivan and I covered it completely with black paper and I took bicycle lights. Literally, I went to a bike store and I took bicycle lights and I gaffer taped them to the back of the van in a diagonal pattern. And then I had my assistant drive in a wave pattern up and down beside the two and a half miles of pipe. And it ran as a two-page spread because it was an arresting photograph. And the original grist of the photograph was just basically great concrete that you know went on for a long period mm-hmm. of time. So I had to think my way into that and try to come up with something that was a little bit imaginative that demonstrated the wave detection nature of the place, even though visually it was certainly less than astounding, uh, you know, to take a look at this thing. Yeah, I would imagine that a lot of listeners would think about, you know, big assignments for a commercial client or for National Geographic and think about, you know, the, the fact that you have to deliver something. So the the tendency could be to try and play things safe. But I think that a lot of the images that we've seen um, involve a certain level of risk. So how do you balance out those two, you know, between what you know can deliver the goods and what you aspire to, which may challenge you either technically or logistically? Good question. Um, yeah, it is about risk. There's an awful lot to this that is quote unquote, a little bit risky. Um, you know, you court failure whenever you, um, try something that is, you know, perhaps innovative or imaginative. There's always things that could go wrong. If I can, you know, um, speaking to my own survival, I try to get a, the magazine a safe picture, if I can, uh, something that will work uh, for them and that might be a little bit maybe more pedestrian um, than the, you know, um, grand scheme that I have cooked up in my head. Uh, so if I can, I try to do that. Uh, if I cannot, then I just have to have faith, uh, for, um, the geographic. Again, I had a story on the globalization of culture and I needed to work with an Asian actor or actress that, um, was pretty major and was capable of doing stunts. And, um, the, the picture had to say, Asian actor, actress, stunts, and Hollywood, because the gist of the photograph or the gist of the story point was that um, a lot of big-time actors from Asia were coming over and having a lot of impact in in Hollywood movies. And so Michelle Yeoh, I, I worked with her um, on a couple of occasions. She's a lovely lady, and she was, you know, in Jackie Chan movies, and she was a Bond girl in one, you know, um, uh, one iteration on screen, and she was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was very popular at the time. And I suggested to her that we drop on wires below the skids of a helicopter and fly over the Hollywood sign, just suspended on wires. And I would be up there with her shooting wide angle, and we did that. And it cost the geographic the better part of $20,000. We had to establish a helicopter base, temporary helicopter base in the Hollywood Hills. We had to go through all sorts of insurances and all that sort of stuff. And she was willing to do it because she's very daring. Her agent was freaking out. Um, and uh, I hired the best um, you know, uh, stunt pilot, helicopter stunt pilot in, in Los Angeles, Peter McKiernan and got her, got Riggers, who had done the work on the movie Titanic, 
to keep us safe and drop us on these wires. And the two of us just walked under the belly of a helicopter and it lifted off the ground and we went flying 500 feet in the air, both of us hanging there. And there was no guarantee. You couldn't try that shot beforehand. And there's no guarantee my editors were going to like it. Um, my specific editor on the story okayed it, gave me a green light. And he said, give it a try because that's his nature, which I bless him for. And we brought that in, and the editor of the Geographic, just his jaw just dropped. And that's the reaction you want, especially from somebody like who, from somebody who, who is the editor of a major publication like that. They tend to be a bit jaundiced, you know. They've seen it all, you know. It's like they see routinely a lot of really, really fine photography. So when you get their attention and when you make things just stop and say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is pretty cool. Then you know you've done your job. I was talking to Jay Dickman and we were talking about working for National Geographic and he says that a lot of the photographers who have worked for them have often had passions outside of photography that have sort of led them to have opportunities at, at the magazine. Is that true for you? What What are your other passions besides using the camera? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, what I I do find and just really didn't implicate itself into you know coming to geographic's attention uh, within the context of photography. I do have kind of a passion or a hobby, and that's photographing dance. And I photograph dance, you know, sort of off to the side. Um, in many regards, uh, for not for publication, um, just for myself, for many years, and um, I'll never be known as a dance photographer, uh, but it's something that I am very, very passionate about and very committed to, and ultimately it has played into certain opportunities I've had with various magazines, including Geographic, and beyond that, you know, my my passion in life really is. Um, spending time with my wife, um, to be honest, because it, it's a hard life. It beats you up a great deal. You're on the road a great deal. And uh, what I, uh, both of us, you know, uh, Annie, who does, has a pretty rigorous road schedule herself, our, our idea of, of a hobby or, or something that we, we love to do is, is just to collect ourselves around home. So it sounds pretty mundane, but it's it's actually uh, very much a driving force, which is also has led me to write more, you know, on my blog and, and the books I've done over the last couple of years um, tends to be a little more of a homebound activity, and I find I really enjoy that. Yeah, I think one of the things that people don't consider when they when they see these photographs in these magazines and they think about all the glamour of travel, but living out of a suitcase for so many days out of the year is is really daunting at times. How how do you sustain yourself um just emotionally and, and, and physically when so so many demands are being made on you to go out and make these photographs? It's it's not that easy. I mean, that's, that's a really simplistic answer, but I can't tell you how many assistants I've taken out on the road over the course of doing this. And they're just all gung ho. And they're just, wow, this is fantastic. We're going to go and do this. And they spend some time out there. And before you know it, they're like, Hey, wait a minute, this really is hard work. I don't know about this so much, you know, and the uh, component, some folks overlook not all, but certainly some, especially in this age of the digital revolution and 
and how quote unquote easy all this is, you know, uh, instantaneous transmission, instantaneous gratification, fancy uh, cameras that do a whole variety of tasks now that uh, automatically that used to have to be done, you know, manually. Um, all these things have kind of uh, created a bit of a myth that, you know, picture taking is easy. And, and picture taking is, is in fact, easy. Anybody can make a pretty good snap nowadays, but making a living at this, sustaining yourself on the road, turning in an archive of work every year that is um, that communicates well, that is pleasing to clients and sustains you and uh, your operation, your family, your studio, whatever it might be economically, that's a long, hard slog. And there's physical and emotional uh, and economic risk and challenges all along the way. I spent about 260, between 260 and 270 uh, days on the road last year. This year so far, I have on Delta alone, I have 140,000 miles. That's just half the year. Wow. Um, so it's, um, um, you know, you can get sick, for instance, really easily, you know, physically, uh, you know, strange food, hotel food, airline food, no sleep, um, early calls, all that sort of stuff conspire against your success. Uh, you know, the person, the people who sustain themselves for long periods of time doing this, um, you know, know the drill, uh, they know what they have to do. Uh, when you get into this, you're, uh, you have to get into it with your eyes wide open. Yeah, because when you're abroad on location, you, there's there's no sick day. You know, you have to you have to deliver regardless of how you may be feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's like being a you know, I guess I don't know, on on tour as a singer or a rock star or something. You know, there's no sympathy for you. You know, just you know, if your voice isn't feeling that good that day, you still have to get up on stage and and do do whatever it is that you do. And it's the same thing. Um, that's a big line of demarcation between the enthusiast shooter and the professional shooter. Uh, you go out as a pro and there's money on the line and you just, you know, maybe had a fight with your wife and your kids aren't doing well in school and you've got the beginnings of the flu and your flight was delayed and you didn't get to your hotel until two o'clock in the morning and your call was at 5 a.m. So you're going on vapor, really you still have to turn around a good photograph. Mm -hmm. You were talking about how the act of making a photograph is very, is very simple and the age of digital and the fact that digital cameras are so ubiquitous. Now they're in your cell phones. They're just, they're just everywhere allows people to make assumptions about what you do. And, and when it comes to your commercial, commercial clients, you know, the people mm -hmm. that hire you to do the, the larger jobs. How has the presence of digital changed your relationships with them? And do you find that you have to educate them more as opposed to what you had to do before in terms of what you need and what you have to do in order to create those images that they're hiring you for? Yeah, I think there is some education that occurs, um, not with maybe the best of clients who really know that, you know, at the end of the day, all of this effort um, you know, is in fact an effort and it can be complex and, you know, things need to be allocated, time, money, 
um, production support, all that stuff. But yeah, some clients tend to look and just say, well, it's digital, right? You know, and can't, we can have it tomorrow, right? And, and there's no charge for that, right? And, <laughs> and you have to kind of go, hey, wait a minute. Um, you know, the photographer in this miracle of digital, yeah, it's great. But what has also happened, so much more work has been dumped on our plates. You know, we're now not only the, the, sh- the shooter, you're also the lab guy. You know, you're effectively, you've become um, your own um, darkroom. And, you know, some clients have to be educated that there's a cost to that. Just like there used to be, if you dropped 100 rolls of Kodachrome off to get processed, there was a cost to that. And now you have, you know, a couple thousand digital frames that need to be stored, archived, labeled, and then possibly uh, processed. Well, there's a charge to that, too, and there's a time factor. It's not absolutely instantaneous the way, um, uh, you know, it's occasionally construed to be. So, yeah, there is a process of education. There's a give and take with clients about what is what does digital really mean and what's possible, what's not. Mm. A lot of, a lot has been made about the recent generations of cameras ability to shoot at astronomically high ISOs. Uh, 6400 and and even and even higher, but I think I've read that you would you know, though that's great and you may use it occasionally you still want a good quality of light uh, at at its heart of its images, at your heart of your images. So talk about a little about how that particular advancement in technology may or may not be influencing how you make your photographs. Well, I think you used the operative word uh, in the context of the question, quality. You know, uh, high ISO is a wonderful thing. Uh, I just did my last story for the Geographic that was published. I spent a lot of time in helicopters shooting um, cityscapes at dusk or outright darkness. You know, nighttime photography from a helicopter is, in fact, easier, and you're able to produce more quality results uh, in this age of digital with, with the high ISO capacity of the cameras. But that high ISO uh, capacity addresses only the quantity of light not, as you mentioned in the question, the quality of light. Uh, you can, sure, for sure, make a picture. Um, do you want to do anything with it afterwards if you shot it at ISO you know, 64,000? Um, more than likely not. Uh, you, uh, are, are, if, you're, if you're desperate and you need to make a picture, high ISO capabilities are fantastic. I'm glad we have them. If you want to speak well with light and you want your pictures to uh, reproduce well, to um, have an eloquence to them and a, and a subtlety and a, and a quality and a luster, all that speaks to quality of light. And that comes from the photographer's knowledge of light, uh, what they can observe, and also what they can apply to the scene. What role does the print play in not so much your professional work, because I think a lot of stuff gets handled electronically, but do you, do you reproduce your, much of your own work in, in print much anymore? Uh, we do. Um, we, you know, we have uh, Epson printers, which are phenomenal in the, in the studio, and I have representation uh, in the fine art world uh, via the Monroe Gallery 
in Santa Fe. And there, Sid and Michelle Monroe do a, a fantastic job at representing uh, photojournalism as art. And uh, they handle a lot of the Life collection. And uh, I'm the last staff photographer at Life magazine. So we have a natural connection. And uh, I find um, that, yeah, the easy electronic delivery of most of the work is great and looks wonderful and I'm happy that we have it but at the end of the day too having a really wonderful print is perhaps the best expression of the work uh, and um, that to me is, is still a very honored process I, I don't do a great deal of it uh, anymore because uh, you know my my life is sort of consumed behind the camera that's that's the key to keeping us going forward at the studio. But um, I was a good black and white printer when I left school years ago, and I have always retained a, 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 an enormous respect for a really wonderful print. That experience is very rich and very moving to me. So we do a limited amount of printing in our studio, and it's important to us. Is is the majority of what's happening in your images happening in camera with very little being relegated to to Photoshop after the fact? I know in terms of photojournalism, you're, there are certain um, accepted you know, limitations in terms of manipulation, but for your other work, um, is Photoshop or any of these other software applications playing much of a role in, in the final result? I think that the marriage of photography and post-production is, is, uh, is a good and necessary one. We don't um, do a great deal of it, at the studio, uh, I mean, basic darkroom work is what we mostly engage in. Um, there are photographers out there who derive the look of their work, the saleability, the appeal of it from post-processing. And, you know, I really, I like some of it. It's pretty, pretty interesting, pretty terrific. It's not what we get called upon to do too often. We're not known for it, first off. Um, and also certain clients like the geographic. Everything I send the geographic comes out of my camera as a raw file and goes straight to them without me touching it. Um, if they do any post-processing on it, that becomes their editorial call, not mine. So I'm constrained in that way. I do nothing to those files. My own files for you know my own books and stuff like that, we do basic darkroom work. But the, um, the thing that stays with me is kind of the way I was raised photographically, where the click of the shutter is pretty much the beginning and the end of the process, not just the, not just the beginning of a road that takes you through the, the post-production wilderness. And, uh, and when you say basic darkroom work, what exactly are you speaking of there? We're talking about um, sharpening. You know, digital images need to be sharpened. Um, a bit of cleanup, you know, dust spots and that type of thing. Uh, a bit of saturation, perhaps color, you know, enhancement to accommodate the screen experience or whoever you're delivering that to certain clients, you know, for commercial work, you know, need uh, perhaps uh, enhancements to uh, the colors of logos or this and that, those kinds of things. But in terms of wholesale replacing of buildings and skies, um, no, we tend not to do that. But there is also a wonderful thing that I, I view at our studio is that I'm my first assistant, and uh, we have a, a second assistant right now. Uh, they're both younger guys. They're both very good with post-production. And they will look at sometimes at my files, um, something that we did in the field, a self-assignment for a book project. And 
uh, Drew Gurian, he's a very good shooter, and uh, he's been our first assistant for two years. He'll say, well, let me, I'm going to do some work on this. And I'm all for that because I learn stuff from it. And also they have a younger uh, visual aesthetic. And frankly, you know, when you're throwing your portfolio out into the mix of the world of work now, you have to remain current. So um, they'll do some some basic moves. Uh, again, not all that much, but uh, subtle stuff, you know, where they desaturate a little bit. There's a, you know, very popular uh, look, if you will, that's been you know, around for, you know, a, a while now to where people kind of desaturate their images, kind of becomes a, a little bit of a mix of color and black and white. And uh, when they see possibilities like that, I tell them, go for it, you know, and, and uh, see what happens, see where, see where it, it, it brings that image to. Um, and that sort of stuff happens as well. Yeah. You, before we started a conversation, we were talking about uh, that you're doing a lot less editorial work, largely because you're you're not particularly inspired by some of the assignments that get thrown your your way. Um, your your career has been built largely on the photo essay, and and there are so fewer and fewer opportunities for such stories to find a place in particularly in in magazines. You have an opportunity to talk to a lot of other photographers and editors. Where where do you see that kind of storytelling um, finding a home? Good question. Um, open question, I think. Um, certainly, the the uh, the emphasis on multimedia and using the web well um, impacts on uh, the potential to continue to do well-developed stories. You're right. Magazines don't have a lot of um, space. Um, many magazines provide because of their the economics of what they have to do to stay alive, they pre uh, present a very cluttered graphic environment. Um, thankfully, Geographic still maintains a very clean graphic environment, and they do devote pages uh, and pages and pages to stories. And I still find that that magazine still has uh, a, a key that opens lots of doors and creates wonderful opportunities for storytelling. I'm not saying it doesn't help happen anyplace else, it does, to be sure. Um, magazines, I would say, are, are now kind of in experiment mode. Uh, you know, what is the future for them? Is it in print, or is it a diminished existence in print, and more of an opportunity to create uh, on uh, an instrument like the iPad and uh, that type of electronic medium, which eventually I think we'll all get used to as a delivery medium, uh, you know, that type of thing anyway. Um, uh, even folks who have been have grown up on on print, I'm already kind of addicted to my iPad. I really enjoy it. Uh, the um, you know the the one of the, one of the reasons we do what we do in the studio in terms of a varied economic uh, scenario. What you know, we shoot, we teach, we lecture, we sell fine art prints, we um, do books. You know, I have a blog. All that multifaceted stuff that you know lots and lots of photographers have found they have to engage in uh you know in in this uh, in this time of ours uh to keep reinventing themselves uh, some of the funding you know that we're able to gather say from a book will go towards the creation of another book or the cre or the furthering of a body of work you know i, I do my own 
uh, self-assigning, you know, especially in the realm of dance or something like that, just to keep myself going forward as a photographer. So while certain opportunities, yes, have dried up, the traditional, uh, you know, phone call is from Time Magazine is no longer coming in. Uh, but there's a world of other opportunities. I really enjoy having a blog, for instance, because I can conceive of and shoot my own assignment and put it up on my blog. And de facto, I published it, you know, self-publishing in very kind of mom and pop uh, way. But nonetheless, it is published. There's no two ways about it. And my blog gets about a half a million hits a month. And so a fair number of people actually see the work. And that's kind of very satisfying in a funny way, you know, that you can just, you don't have to wait for that phone call to kick your butt out the door and go shoot some pictures. You have to remain, as always, very self-motivated. And uh, the opportunity exists to uh, shoot a job and put it on the web and uh, see if anybody notices. That's that's fun. And that word fun is, is, is uh, leads into my next question. I think that you having fun is a big part of why you keep doing what you're doing. But I'm wondering that after all these years, do you still have moments where you look at what you're doing going, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, as hard as it is, say, to shoot a National Geographic assignment, and make no mistake, it's a lot of hard work, there's still some times where you're just like, you know, I did the first all-digital story for the magazine. It was the cover of December 2003, and it was the history of flight. And I'm, you know, I'm backseat flying in formation with the Blue Angels. And I'm like, this, this is cool. <laughs> you know, I'm having a good time doing this. The other component is you better not screw it up and you better not fail having been given this wonderful opportunity. That's our responsibility is to succeed. But at the same time, the remarkable nature of the opportunity that occasionally comes your way as a photographer really is very sustaining, very enriching. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask my guests to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. So who would that one photographer be for you and why? Wow. <laughs> There's a loaded question for you. Um, I mean, I like and, and enjoy and admire so many photographers out there. I have kind of eclectic tastes. I like everybody from a David Burnett to a David LaChapelle, you know, uh, influences all over the place. And you've already interviewed one of my all-time favorite photographers, Dan Winters, who has an extraordinary eye. Um, so let me ponder this for a minute. I mean, the, um, the thing that, that always motivates me is, is, is uh, the photographers out there who are doing really significant work who might not be perhaps noticed as much as as certain other folks um you know i mentioned the name david burnett you you must know david's work yeah absolutely um incredibly intelligent photographer um just a long time a gold standard of uh photojournalists and um just you know communicates incredibly well very very thoughtful uh photographer um i was just in the company of bill frakes who is on uh, the cutting edge of um, the digital um, video uh, revolution that's going on where you take you know your DSLR 
and you flick a button and all of a sudden you're shooting high-def video. Uh, Bill's doing a tremendous amount of that uh, for Sports Illustrated. And there's a good example of a guy who spent his most of his career uh, you know, getting one or two or five pictures run in print for a story that now the web has thrown open the possibility for him to do hundreds of stills as well as video and audio from that same story that if it had been in the magazine, it would have been represented by just a couple of pictures. Mm. Those, those guys, I think, are, are very significant guys that you could perhaps talk, talk with. Well, thank you again so much for appearing on the show and making some time for us this morning. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a fun, uh, fun talk, and you ask good questions, which makes uh, which makes you think, and that's always that's always important because sometimes, as a photographer, you go so fast and so furiously that at the end of the week you turn around like, "What did I just do?" <laughs> you know. Thanks for joining me again for the show. If you have any comments or suggestions. You can email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Flickr. Links to each can be found on the blog. And if you haven't taken the time to support the show this year with a modest donation, please consider it, especially if the show continues to support your own passion for photography. Till next time, this is Evadian Exparello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.